Okay, guys, so welcome. Um, okay, so welcome. Thank you for joining in. Uh, today, if you saw in the group, we're doing the last three books of the Old Testament, right? So we're doing Haggai and then Zechariah and then Malachi. So I won't say much by, in, by means of introduction. We're at the old. We're at the end of the Old Testament, so it's great that we're here. It took us a while, but we're here already. So, let's start with the Book of Haggai. So, if you have your Bibles, please turn there, and uh, let's turn to chapter one. And remember, if you have any questions, comments, feel free to just jump in, put it on the chat, or you can just uh, interrupt me. It's not a problem. So, the Book of Haggai, right? So. What happens here is, is happening, it's occurring after the exile. So remember, the Israelites went into exile and the temple was destroyed, right? They were living, they were living in Babylon as, as exiles there until the Medo-Persian Empire defeated the Babylonians and freed the Israelites. And then Cyrus issues a decree letting the Jews go back to their land, to Jerusalem, right? The Jews, they then go back to, to Israel and they start rebuilding the temple, they start rebuilding the temple, but they lose heart. They lose interest. It's almost like they have no motivation to do so. So they just build an altar so that at the very least they can do the sacrifices that they have to do. But then they stop, right? They are a very apathetic people. They were very lazy. Um, they stop building the temple. So the Lord raises up Haggai and Zechariah. So Haggai and Zechariah are contemporaries. They are around during the same time. And Haggai calls the people to start rebuilding the temple. This is around the year 520 BC. So in this book, in Haggai, he has four messages or four sermons that he preaches. And these sermons are a call to the people to start rebuilding the temple. And they do. The people start rebuilding the temple. And eventually the temple is completed in four years. It takes them four years to complete the temple in the year 516 BC. So chapter 1 Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So the people start building, but then other things happen. You know, life happens and they say, mm, maybe it's not time to rebuild the temple. You know, verse 3, then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in, the, in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts. Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a, into a bag with holes. And then verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And then he tells them to go get materials and to build a temple. So the phrase, consider your ways, is constantly repeated. It's a phrase that's that he used a lot in scripture, like in the, in the Proverbs. It calls, it calls you and I to think about our life. We do that in communion, right? Because instruction from Paul about communion is to examine yourself. So the Bible always wants us to be thoughtful and to be mindful, right? Consider your ways and your life. We don't know the exact reasons why the people did not build the temple. They just say the time has not yet come. And yet they are building beautiful houses for themselves. They even have wood paneled houses, which is expensive at that time in history, right? During the era, it was very expensive. So life, life must be good to a certain extent. But in the midst of their luxury and their prosperity, there's frustration. And that is what God is saying to them in verse 6. You eat, but you're never full. You drink, but you're never filled. You put on clothes, but you're never warm, right? You get money, but all you do is put it in a purse with holes in it. The people are never satisfied. They are never content. God's people are not building the temple, which is, which is what they should have been doing. Instead, they're building up their own lives, their own wealth. But they have no joy and they have no satisfaction in their lives. And the Lord is doing that on purpose. right? He says, I am frustrating you in every area of your life because you are not putting me first. And sadly, a lot of, a lot of pastors will use passages found in the book of Haggai to get people to give money, to get people to give money for a building fund, for a church. They will tell the congregants, look, we need to build a temple, right? Uh, and you are living in a nice house instead of helping us to get the temple or the church built. And that is, firstly, it's manipulative. 
And secondly, we don't need the temple anymore, right? What is the temple now? The temple is the people of God, right? There is no holy place anymore, except for when believers gather together, then it is a holy place, right? Wherever we gather to worship. So now what we do as believers is we don't build a physical temple, we build a kingdom, the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God requires practical things, right? Which do involve money, no doubt, no doubt about that. Right? Maybe even a, even a church building is, is, is necessary. But we must focus on building the kingdom, which is making disciples of all the nations. Right? It's no use having a beautiful building, but it's sitting empty or the people in it are not being discipled. Right? They are not being uh, um, led to Christ. Seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will follow. Right? Focus on that and then on your own problems in life. Verse 13 then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord, uh, on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. So I am with you, says the Lord. And does that phrase remind you of something, right? Something that's said in the New Testament. So think about the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Matthew, in Matthew 28, it says, Go and make disciples of all the nations. And Jesus says, I am with you. And in Haggai, the temple is being built and the Lord says, I am with you. So it fits together so beautifully because the Old Testament, it's build this temple, right? Build this house of the Lord. I am with you. In the New Testament, it's build this temple, build this, this new kingdom, this new temple, this church. I am with you. And so in chapter 2, it says, Who is left, verse 3, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. So again, very similar to the Great Commission. Verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine declares the Lord of hosts. In verse 9, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So in 520 BC, they start rebuilding and they start putting up walls and everything. And eventually it's completed in 516 BC. So they complete it in four years. And in the book of, in the book of Ezra, the older generation, so the guys who are old enough, to have seen the previous temple before it was destroyed, to see Solomon's temple, if you think, if you remember, they cry when they see this new temple because they, re they remember Solomon's temple from back then and how glorious it was. And the one that they've just built now, the one they've finished rebuilding, is pathetic in comparison. It's so pathetic that they cry. And yet in verse 9, the Lord says, this temple has nothing on Solomon's temple. Right? He says the glory of this temple will far surpass that of Solomon's temple. So what is God talking about? Is it that there is going to be another temple built at the end? Or is this one they just built going to be renovated and upgraded? right? Or is, this, is the glory of this temple pointing to something else? It's pointing to Christ. I think it's pointing to Christ because uh, John chapter 1, John 1 verse 14 says, The word became flesh and tabernacled or dwelt among us. right? And this links us to the temple and the tabernacle. And the passage then says, and we beheld his glory, right? The one who tabernacled us with us, we beheld his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. So there's this link between temple and glory and God's presence and the temple is fulfilled in the coming and the person of Christ. So this temple that they've just built is, is a building. It's just a building. It's nothing. And remember, that's what the early church and what Jesus got into trouble for. He got into trouble for saying, tear down this temple. And they all thought he was talking about the structure, right? The one that the one they are rebuilding here in Haggai. The Jews were really upset about that. 
uh, Stephen got stoned to death for saying, God doesn't dwell in buildings of stone built by human hands. Right? The heavens is his throne and the earth is his footstool. Because the temple was an obsession for the Jews. And yet, Jesus is going to come with a far greater glory and he will be the temple. Right? But there's also going to be a shaking, a judgment. So look at verse 21. Verse 21 of chapter 2. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the, uh, the throne of kingdoms. Now, this, this, this passage, uh, uh, verse 21, who quotes this passage? It's the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12. In verse 18 of Hebrews, in, in, in uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, uh, you don't have to turn there, but in my Bible, I'm using the ESV version, uh, the ESV. It has the header, a kingdom that can't be shaken. And remember, the context of Hebrews is Christians who are tempted to apostatize, uh, who are tempted to leave the faith due to persecution. They are tempted to compromise on certain teachings of Scripture, right? Um, such as, uh, you know, they're tempted to say Jesus is just a prophet or to go back on the teachings of Christ due to the pressure from the Romans. And then he says in verse 25 of Romans, uh, sorry, of Hebrews, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Right, and who is speaking there? It's the Lord. And then it says, For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth. So that is speaking of what happened during Moses' time on Mount Sinai. And he continues, But now he has promised, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And then it says, verse 29, For our God is a consuming fire. So this is important for us believers. You hear a lot of Christians who claim to be orthodox believers, who claim to believe the Bible, but you hear how they respond to cultural issues today. So, for example, um, homosexuality or issues of egalitarianism, feminism, social justice, etc. They will go to passages in scripture saying, but God is love, right? Do not judge. A lot of Christians will use God is love as an excuse. They make, they make God is love the overarching attribute of God, as if it is the attribute of God that is above all, right? It's funny because they don't mention that God is also consuming fire. That's what verse 29 of Hebrews says. Right, God is holy, God is just, they are both true. You cannot split God up into God and He's all love. And here's a dash of wrath, here's a dash of here's a bit of holiness. God is not a pie chart, right? He is fully God in all His attributes, they are all in perfect harmony. God is fully wrath, He's fully holy, He's fully loving, He's fully just and fully merciful, right? You can't say that He's, he's wrathful and He's just, but His love covers that up, right? He cannot be broken up into parts. But notice the writer of Hebrews says that, uh, says when he quotes, yet once more he will shake heaven and earth. So in a sense, there's a shaking that has been going on all along and the things that will be, will be moved, will be moved. Think of the parable of Jesus when he says, those who built their lives on the sand, when the judgment comes, it's not going to hold. But if you are on the rock, on the kingdom that cannot be shaken, you will be okay. So that is the warning to the people in Haggai as well, right? You are focusing not on the things of God. You're not building up the temple. You're focusing on the things of the world, on your own comfort. You're building on the sand instead of the rock. So that's what Haggai is saying there. And if you go back to, to Haggai, from the, third, the third sermon that he gives is from chapter 2, verse 10. And he says, uh, sorry, verse 12, he says, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any, or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it, does it become unclean? The priest, and, uh, the priest answered and said, it does become unclean. So if you are carrying meat and uh, you are going to sacrifice this. It's holy meat, right? It's set apart for God. And then you touch something unclean whilst carrying it. Does the holiness of the meat transfer onto that thing? The priest said no. And they're right, it doesn't. But if you touch something unclean, 
So if you touch a dead animal, which would make you ceremonially unclean, then you go and touch wine or food. Does the wine and food become unclean? Yes. Uncleanness is contagious, but holiness is not. And what he's saying, if you read from verse 12, the Lord is saying, you are doing all your sacrifices, but that is not making everything clean because it's like a dead temple, right? The temple is dead, so it's making everything else unclean. The whole thing is unclean, and so all of your sacrifices are unclean and are being contaminated. And that's, that's the Lord's rebuke to the people then. And then the book ends with the promise of a servant to come, right? So it says in verse 21, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the kingdom of king, the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So this Zerubbabel guy, he's a governor. And the priest at the time was this Joshua that was mentioned. And Zerubbabel is actually a descendant of King David. So at this time, at this point in history, there are no more kings in Israel. They are just governors. And the Lord says in verse 23, Zerubbabel, my servant. Remember that servant is a very powerful term in the Old Testament. When we looked at Isaiah, we found the suffering servant, right? And the servant songs in the book of Psalms. And David is called my servant. It's not just anyone who gets called that in the Old Testament. So God says to Zerubbabel, you are my servant and I'm going to make you like a signet ring. A signet ring signaled authority and power. And so God has chosen him. And the passage is enigmatic because is it Zerubbabel himself or does it point beyond him? And it points to Christ, right? Christ will come from the line of Zerubbabel, from the line of David. So Christ will be the ultimate signet ring and Christ will be the ultimate servant of the Lord. So the book ends with a pointing to Christ, right? Uh, the people, the people, they do actually end up finishing the temple, right? And they wouldn't have done it without the prophets, without Haggai coming along. Uh, but again, the, the greater purpose is the foreshadowing of Christ. So that's, that's the book of Haggai. That's, that's what's going on there. Um, very brief, very to the point. Any questions on that? Okay, let's move on to Zechariah. So Zechariah is a contemporary of Haggai, right? He was around during the same time, like I said earlier. But Zechariah is a much more complex book. If you're looking at genre, it contains apocalyptic language, which makes it a bit more challenging when it gets to interpreting the book. And it's got 14 chapters and you can divide it into two, into two sections. Chapters 1 to 8 deal with the Jews rebuilding the temple. And chapters 9 to 14 deal with the full restoration and the Lord judging his enemies and saving his people. So let's go to chapter 1. Um, it says in verse 1, In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So this is a warning to learn from history. That's what he's saying here. God is saying, look what happened to your fathers. They didn't listen to me and they didn't listen to the prophets. And now where are they? And we know that what the prophets said, what they prophesied came to pass and judgment came. Remember, this is after the destruction of the temple and after the exile. God had warned his people that if they continue their evil, way, evil ways, then they would be judged. And they were. And then Zechariah goes on to have these visions, right? This is the apocal very apocalyptic section of the book. Um, the first one is a vision of a horseman. So very similar to the book of Revelation. It says in verse 8, 
I saw in the night and behold, a man, a man riding a red, on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the clan and behind him were red, sorrel and white horses. Then I said, what are these, my Lord? The angel talked with me, said, said to me, the angel who talked with me, said to me, I will show you what they are. And so he explained and the, the horsemen, they patrol the earth and the earth is at rest. Now, what that means is God's people, they are not at rest. They are struggling, but the nations are at rest, which is not the way it's supposed to be. There should be no rest for the wicked. God's people are not experiencing rest, but the wicked are. And so that is what is going on. It's a warning of judgment that is going to come upon the nations who are at ease. God is angry with him. And then Zechariah, Zechariah has a second vision, which speaks of a similar thing. So if you go down to verse 18 of chapter 1, it says, And I lifted my eyes and I saw, behold, four horns. Right. So it speaks of a horn causing trouble for the people of God, for Israel. Remember that a horn in scripture represents either a kingdom or a powerful, a powerful ruler of a kingdom. So the number four here is being used to show, it's being used to show how comprehensive the horns are, how comprehensive the power of the horns and the kingdoms are. In scripture, the number four is used as a comprehensive number. So think of the four corners of the earth. Obviously, the earth has no corners, but that just explains just how, you know, far and wide it goes or the four winds. And it doesn't always literally mean four, especially when it comes to apocalyptic genre. Some people think that the four could refer to the kingdoms that we saw in the book of Daniel. So remember, Daniel uh, prophesied of the four kingdoms to come, which was the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks and the Romans. Uh, and other people think it might be the Assyrians. We don't know for sure, but what we know is it represents the enemies of God and his people. And God, again, is going to judge them. And then there's the vision of a man with a measuring line. So this is in chapter 2. If you go to chapter 2, verse 2, Then I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him, and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her, verse 5, I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. And then it speaks of judgment in verse 8. For thus said the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent, sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you, the apple of his eye. And then verse 11, and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord, in that day and shall be my people and I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. So what is going on in this vision, right? There's this guy who's going to measure Jerusalem and the angel tells that man that Jerusalem is going to be so full of people that it's going to overflow the actual buildings and the actual town, right? It's, it's, it's going to be filled with people from many nations so that it will be overflowing all over the place. It's going to be so full that there won't be any walls at all, right? And normally a city without walls is vulnerable to attack from enemies. But then the Lord says, I will be a wall to her, like a flame, a wall of fire. And immediately in my mind, this puts, this reminds me of the Garden of Eden, of paradise. And remember what was placed there in the Garden of Eden. It was a flaming sword, right? So clearly this passage is speaking not of a physical city of Jerusalem, but of the people of God, the church. And remember that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were kicked out. And the angel came with flaming swords to keep the people out. Right? God placed them there to keep the people out. They can't get back into paradise. They can't get back into the presence of God. Same thing with the temple when it is built. Right? The, the temple in Jerusalem. Remember, within the temple structure, there's different sections. And there's, uh, there's, there's rooms, there's different rooms. And within the, the inner part of the temple, there's the holiest of holies. And not anyone was allowed to go there except the priest, the high priest. And that was only once a year. And that was a very dangerous thing. He could have been killed. And if you think back to the description of the temple, there's a curtain that leads to the holiest of holies inside the temple. And the pictures on the curtains are angels with flaming swords. Right, Because people were not allowed to go into that room. You can't get into the holies of holies. You can't get into the presence of God. 
So God has been keeping people out because God is holy and we are not. But in the new heavens and the new earth, it is God who is going to keep his people in. He's going to keep the wicked people out, right? the evil people out. God's people are going to be part of the new Jerusalem, which is made up of Jew and Gentile. And he's going to protect them and going to be a flame of fire around them. So it's not the first time that God uh, will be a wall of fire around his people. Think back to Exodus. When the Jews were coming out of Egypt, God put a wall of fire between his people and the Egyptians, right? There was what's it? It's a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night, right? These are my people and you can't come. That's what he was saying to uh, the, the, the Egyptians. And that is a beautiful image. God will keep and protect his people from the wicked, right? And then we get to chapter 3, and chapter 3 is sometimes called the Gospel of Zechariah. It says, verse 1, Then he showed up, he, then he showed me Joshua, he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And, and to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. On his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. So here we have Joshua, who is a priest. And what does a priest do? A priest, remember, a priest represents the people to God. He would be an advocate of the people to God. That is why they ran the temple and the sacrificial ceremonies. It was their duty. And then we get prophets. And what were the prophets? They were God's representative, representative to the people, right? So they spoke God's word to God's people. So you have priests and prophets, you know, priests taking the people to God and prophets bringing God to the people. And a priest wore clothes. They had a uniform that was full of symbols and colors that made reference, references and represented the people. The clothes that they wore were symbolic and they were supposed to uh, set God's, God's spiritual leaders apart from the other Israelites. And even in Exodus 28, it says that Aaron and his sons, remember that's where the priesthood starts with Aaron and his sons, uh, they had to wear the garments whenever they entered the tent of meeting or whenever they approached the altar to minister in the holy place so that they will not incur guilt and die, right? So this dress code was a strict requirement from God. But here, Joshua is standing before the angel, right? He's standing before the angel and his priestly clothes are filthy. They are stained with his own sin and the sin of the people. And Satan, the accuser, he's doing what he does best. He's accusing. And it seems as though he has a good case to make because Joshua is standing there and he is a sinner. And the fact that he has filthy garments proves that him and the people are sinners. Because remember, a priest represents the people. But the Lord rebukes Satan and instructs for Joshua to, to be clothed with new garments. His filthy rags are taken off and these beautiful uh, white robes, robes of righteousness. Right? The, the Bible uses this picture a lot, robes of righteousness. And it's a description of salvation. It's a picture of the gospel. All of my sin, all my shame... All my shame is and all my impurities taken and put on Christ and all his righteousness is put on me. And Satan is silent, right? Ultimately, he's not able to accuse us because in Christ, we are as righteous as Christ. And then he says in verse, verse 8, if you look, it says, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. So that passage is also appointed to Christ. We saw in Jeremiah and Isaiah that the branch is really a reference to Christ. In Isaiah chapter 6, remember it speaks of a tree that was cut down completely. And then later in, in, in the book, in chapter 11, there's a little offshoot. There's a little sprout, a little branch. And that is Christ, right? He is the branch. He is the remnant. He is the true Israelite that doesn't fail. So we have the next vision in chapter 6. If you go to chapter 6, we have a vision of a priest and the king. And it says in verse 11, Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. So this branch is going to build a temple. It was... It was the role and the responsibility of a king to build a temple, right? So think like Solomon is the one who built the temple. Um, and then uh, uh, the kings after that who came by, they were the ones who were in charge of building a temple and ensuring that it was built. So, and then he says in verse 13, It is he who shall build a temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. So, very strange. It is going to be Joshua who's sitting there and the branch, right? It's a strange image. You have Joshua, Yeshua. So, that name points us to Christ, the one who builds the temple and the one who, pre- who represents the people to God, right? You have the priest and the king. And you have kind of a morphing of these two images, king and priest. So, it is very enigmatic and difficult picture to understand but we have we've had hints already from Psalm 110 and in Genesis we have Melchizedek and other passages of scripture where there's this idea, there's this description of an individual who is priest and king and prophet, right? And of course it all comes into focus and into fullness in Christ. Christ is prophet, priest and king. He is the branch, right? He is Yeshua. He builds the temple. So, again, throughout the whole of the Old Testament, there is so much imagery, there's so much that points to Christ, which is, um, honestly, it's quite obvious. It's, it's in your face once you see it, right? So, um, those are the visions we'll go through. Uh, like I said, the second half of the book um, deals more with uh, restoration. And chapters 9 to 14 are actually the most quoted part of Scripture in the Passion Narratives in the New Testament. So the Passion Narratives are the periods that deal with the last week of Jesus' life, his suffering and death. In this section, you have this divine warrior who's going to bring judgment. And there's going to be great joy when he enters Zion. So look at chapter 9, verse 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a cult, the fall of a donkey, right? So you know, you know that account in, in, in the gospel, right? How Jesus enters into the city. That's a well-known passage. It's in the gospel of Mark and Matthew. And then if you go down to chapter 11, chapter 11, you have Zechariah being told to act out a sign, right? To pretend to be a shepherd, right? So remember, um, Ezekiel was also another prophet who was told to act out the signs. So same thing here with Zechariah. He's to pretend to be a prophet who then gets rejected and then he wants his wages. So look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages. But if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces, 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter. The, Lord, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Then I broke my second staff union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. So we don't have time to go deep into this. But Zechariah is acting out Christ as a shepherd who comes to, the, to his people, but they don't want him. And so he says, give me what I'm worth to you. And they say, you are worth a slave, 30 pieces of silver. And you see that with Judas, right? What is Christ worth to Judas? For what was he willing uh, for what price was he willing to betray him for 30 pieces of silver? So remember that Jesus came to his own people. These are his people, right? These are his sheep and he's their shepherd, but they don't want him. They say, you're not worth anything. You're worth the value of a slave. And then in the passage, the, the pieces of silver that's thrown back into the house of the Lord to the potter, it also symbolizes that something is wrong with the house of the Lord, right? With the temple and the temple system. So that's a reference to the Pharisees. So again, we find another fulfillment of Zechariah in the life of Christ, right? Christ fulfills his prophecy. And we'll look more into that once we get to the Gospels. So if you go to chapter 12, <clears throat> in chapter 12 and down in verse 10, verse 10 says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. 
And so uh, they rejected him. They rejected the shepherd, but he's still going to save. Continues so that when they look at when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Right. So um, brings to mind John, John chapter 19, verse 37, where it says they will look on him whom they have pierced at the crucifixion. Jesus is pierced, but that piercing leads to restoration, right? Uh, he was pierced for our, our transgressions. And you'll see that in chapter 13 of Zechariah and in how his piercing leads to sin being cut off. It leads to idolatry being cut off. But this is what makes it difficult, right? Because for the prophets like Zechariah and even uh, all the prophets that we've seen so far, when they think of all this, right, that will happen, they think it's all going to happen at one coming. So we know that Christ has come, but there will be a second coming. But the prophets, um, I think I think that they thought all of this would happen all at once. So the prophecies will sometimes say things about the first coming and his, and his second coming as if they're all together, right? As if it's all one event. So it's, it, it's from, from Zechariah's point of view, it seems he thinks that sin will be cut off once and for all once the Messiah comes, right? Uh, when the Lord comes, he will destroy idolatry. And in a certain sense, he has, right? In the lives of true believers, idolatry is being destroyed, but it hasn't been destroyed perfectly. We still sin. But at the second coming, there will be no more idolatry, right? It will be finished. And it's in this context that he says that the shepherd will be struck. So how will he bring about this restoration? Again, it's through his suffering. And then uh, if you go down to the last chapter, chapter 14, so this is about the coming day of the Lord, right? Of the coming of the day of the Lord, it says in verse 6, On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord. Right? This day is neither day or night, but at evening time there shall be light. So on that day it's going to be you know, a hectic day, right? You get a description of the day of the Lord and the judgment that's coming. But one of the things that's going to happen is, look at verse 20. Verse 20 says, And on that day they shall be inscribed on the bowels of the horses, Holy to the Lord, and the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifices in them. And they shall no longer be a trader in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. So this is actually an amazing passage. Remember, Zechariah is living under the Mosaic Covenant. Under the Mosaic Covenant, who was holy to the Lord? Or actually, what was holy to the Lord? If you think back to the Ark of the Covenant and then the Temple, remember there were all these objects and all these items. There were descriptions of things that went into the Temple that were holy, right? Uh, things made out of gold. There were vessels. There were candlesticks. Uh, and other objects inside that were holy and set apart to the Lord. And the priests, even the priests were instructed to wear uh, certain clothes that, that uh, represented holiness being set apart for the Lord. They had to wear a gold strip on their turban that said, holy to the Lord. Now Zechariah is looking to the time when even the most mundane, everyday object is going to be holy and set apart for the Lord, Right? Even the pots and the bowls, even the bells of the horses, like even this little teaspoon, even this cup, it will be holy and set apart for the Lord because it will be the new heavens and the new earth. Everything will be holy uh, and set apart to the Lord, right? That's what Zechariah is saying there. So can you see how in the mind of Zechariah, what will the arrival of the Messiah be like, right? So remember, he's thinking that this is all the, fir the, uh, the first coming of the Lord, but this is when everything will be consummated, right, at the, at the second coming of the Lord, right? So he's thinking, it'll be amazing. Everything will be holy to the Lord. It'll be like the temple, but everywhere. And he's right. It will, it will be, but it will be bigger than that. In the new heavens and new earth, everything will be holy to the Lord. Even now, there is a bit of that, right? There is a foretaste. We are holy to the Lord. We are set apart for the Lord. No longer just the priests, right? The priests are not the only ones who are holy and set apart to the Lord. Actually, now every one of us are priests, according to the Apostle Peter, right? You are a holy priesthood, no? You are a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation, 
set apart, every single believer in Christ. And as we live for the kingdom of God, we set all our positions and everything we do, we set it apart for the Lord, right? It's not, it's not mine. It belongs to the Lord. My family is not mine. My family belongs to the Lord. That's what 1 Corinthians 7 teaches. Children are holy and they belong to the Lord. My car, my house, all that the Lord has given us, we give it back to him in the way that we use, right? In the way that we use it to honor him. Our time, money, resources, and abilities. And the day is coming when that will be fully realized. So that's how uh, Zechariah ends the book. And really, it's, it's a wonderful hope of the future that is to come. So any questions on that? Okay. If there's no questions, then let's go to Malachi. Um, so the book of Malachi is the last book in your Bible, in the Old Testament at least. And Malachi is happening around the year 450, 430 BC. Um, and this is after the Jews have returned to the land, right? They've rebuilt the temple, they've built the wall. And yet there are still problems in the land. So if, if, you've, if you've never read Malachi before, you should. It's quite a short book. It's only four chapters. But it's a really beautiful book. And it's unique in how the Lord talks. The way that God talks in this book. The way that the Lord speaks here. Scholars call it, uh, they call it it's a rhetorical device that's called disputation. right? And it's a very powerful way of communicating. So look at chapter 1. Malachi begins and he says in verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? So like I said, the Lord is using disputation as a rhetorical device here, right? God is essentially putting hypothetical questions into their mouths. Can you see that? It's not that the people are actually saying, how have you loved us? God is saying, I have loved you, but you say, how have you loved us? And Paul uses this in Romans 9. When he says, but you say to me, how can he find fault, right? Or when he says later that, uh, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part, right? He's using the same device there. So when you read this book, don't think it's not really like dialogue, right? He's just saying what you might be thinking. And Malachi is full of this. So they say, how have, how have we not loved you, you know? Or how have you loved us? And this is what the Lord says, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I hated. And then the Lord goes on to describe how he destroyed Esau. So he's basically talking about how he destroyed the Edomites. Remember we talked about the Edomite people, how they were descended from Esau, right? And basically what God is saying is, I love you. It's like, well, how do we know that you love us? Well, because I annihilated your brother, right? Because I crushed your brother. It's kind of weird, right? But God goes on, but basically God chose the younger in Jacob, which at that time in that culture was unthinkable. You always chose the older one. You always chose the oldest son as the, as the great one to receive the blessing. But God chose Jacob. And then he goes on and he says, verse six, a son honors his father and a servant his, mas his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priest, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? You see that? He's using that. Uh, he's using disputation as a rhetorical device still. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Pre, uh, present, present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. So remember, the Mosaic Covenant and the sacrificial system said you must give the best of what you have. Right? When you bring your sacrifices, when you bring your animal, when you bring your crops, bring your best. It must cost you. right? Give your best animals and crops for sacrifice. It must cost you because if it doesn't, then it's not a sacrifice right if it doesn't hurt you to give something or if it doesn't cause loss for you to give something of yourself then it's not a sacrifice further if you have sinned and you offer an animal sacrifice to atone as they would do back then 
and you say, okay, I will give the sheep that's about to die or the sheep that is sick. Then you communicate that sin is not such a big thing. You're saying that sin is cheap. It can be atoned for with this non-valuable thing. And, and let's say it's not even a sin offering. Let's say it's a fellowship offering. Then you are saying that fellowship with God and his people is also cheap, right? But you shouldn't do that, right? You should bring your best as a sacrifice. The Lord then says, try that with your governor, with your ruler, right? Invo- invite somebody important over for, for supper, for lunch. Give them stale bread and expired milk that has been in the fridge for two weeks, that has been in the open for two weeks. Would you do that? Would you, you wouldn't treat people like that. And yet you think you can treat me like that. And of course, it hits home because we cannot see God. So we think it's not such a big issue, right? But it is. And how would, how would it apply to us Christians living today? It means we are to give our best to the Lord and his work, especially uh, when you and I are still young, right? This is when we are the strongest, right? When we are at our most energetic. We are at the age where with our bodies, we can serve the Lord so much, right? You have the energy, you have the strength. Don't give the best years of your life to the devil, Give it to the Lord, right? Give the best of your time and your mind to the Lord. Don't sit in bed scrolling on your phone, uh, scrolling through social media, and then decide to do your devotion and prayer when your eyes start to drop and you yawn and you're about to fall asleep, right? You're awake and you're energetic and you spend the best and most active moments of the day on other things instead of spending time in God's word, right? Don't let it become an afterthought to serve the Lord and his people, right? Don't give... Don't give God the leftovers. And sadly, that is our worldview today. People think, let me live this way and then I will settle down and focus on serving the Lord when I'm 60 years old. Right? That's not the view we should have. Right? We should offer our best to the Lord. And chapter 2, if you go down to chapter 2, now he turns to the priest. And verse 2, he says, If you will not listen, if you will not take, take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So the dung had to be taken outside the camp and to be burnt. Right? And that's what they had to do back then. So you would take up your animal, you would cut it and you'd remove all the intestines, uh, all the waste and, and, and the dung and the carcass. Take it outside the camp and burn it outside the camp, right? Destroy it. The Lord says, that's what I'm going to do with you and your children. That's why with Jesus, it is so significant that, that he, according to Hebrews, Jesus was crucified outside the camp, right? Because that's what the people who crucified him were saying, right? They were saying that he was like garbage to be taken outside and that he had no place in God's temple, that he had no place in Jerusalem. How ironic, right? They totally and completely missed who he was. They completely rejected Christ. And then verse 7 of chapter 2 says, For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. So that's what the priests should have been doing, right? They should have been giving uh, the people God's word and truths about God's word, but they weren't. And, he, and it's the same thing that's happening at the time of Christ. And it's the same thing today. So today, today actually, the, the rabbis, so the Jewish rabbis, they don't, tell, they don't tell the Jews about, the Jewish people about Christ, right? Orthodox Jews actually don't read the Bible. They don't read the Old Testament. They don't read the Torah. They only read what the rabbis say, right? So can you imagine not reading your Bible? You just read uh, commentaries or uh, essays and articles by this rabbi or this rabbi before him, Right? Because if Jewish people read their Bible, especially the prophecies like Daniel, they would say, wait a minute, these prophecies and these dates, they tie up exactly to Christ, right? They would see that they would have missed something. They've missed a lot of things. But the rabbis sadly continue to keep them in darkness till this day, right? And verse 11 says, Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. So this part deals with the sins in the land, what's actually happening that's causing God to be angry with the people. And it's probably 
idolatry that was help happening or else intermarrying between believers and unbelievers, God's people and pagans. And the other way that the people are sinning is by divorcing. They are getting divorced from their partners. So look at verse 13. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer, he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. In verse 15, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? So the people in the land, they were, they were getting divorced for ungodly reasons. And verse 15 tells us, gives us an idea as to what happens in marriage, right? It is God joining two individuals together. What God has joined together, let not man separate. <clears throat> and then the passage says again, and what, and what was the, the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So one of the main purposes of marriage is godly offspring. So guard yourselves in the spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his government, sorry, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So one of the reasons for God's anger is divorce. The Israeli men were getting divorced for trivial, pointless reasons. And they were faithless, right? Uh, she burned the toast, or I found someone prettier, or I'm just not in love anymore, right? Don't get it twisted. You are still married in the eyes of the Lord unless you, you divorce for the reasons that God has permitted, right? Otherwise, you are living in adultery. A man, a man cannot avoid adultery just because he has a good lawyer and gets the right paperwork done. And in this day and age, sadly, it's easier to get a divorce than to get out of a phone contract, right? And when it is easy to get a divorce, it is easy to sleep around. It is easy to, it's easy to see children as an inconvenience. And so we murder them in the womb by getting abortions. And you end up, you end up seeing the Romans one effect, right? God giving people up to their lusts and desires. Soon you have men sleeping with men, women sleeping with men. Like Romans 1 says, which is an abomination to the Lord. Sin is a slippery slope like that. And sadly, it's in the church as well. You know, not taking divorce seriously and remarrying after divorce. Really, it is, it is a taking of marriage lightly, right? It's Christians not realizing that the bond that unites a man and a woman is not metaphysical. It's covenantal, right? You're joined by God himself. So all of these things that are happening in the land, it's disobedience to God's word because God says, I hate it, right? God hates divorce. And again, it's not to say that there are no legitimate reasons and occasions for divorce, right? That's not what the Bible is saying. There are legitimate reasons, but those are not as commonplace as, as we would like to think, sadly. Um, it's mostly, I don't love this person anymore, you know, so I'm out, you know, not realizing that it's a covenant. Marriage is a covenant, even verse 15. So verse 15, that is one of the hardest verses. And, and some say it's the hardest verse to translate from the original Hebrew, right? Where it talks about the spirit being involved. But regardless of that, it's clearly saying that it is something special going on in the coming together of a man and a woman. And it may be that the Holy Spirit is involved in a special way, right? And from this, from this union, God is looking for what? For godly offspring, and I'm just trying to emphasize and stress this as a warning to us that divorce is not a small thing, right? Marriage is not a small thing, but that's how it's treated in our culture, right? And we are tempted, even as Christians, to treat divorce like the breakup between boyfriend and girlfriend. Um, there are situations where big, high-profile pastors get a divorce and Christians barely even blink an eye. It's like, ah, you know, it's just like the latest celebrity news. So we need to have a biblical worldview of things. Let us remember to see things the way God sees them. God hates divorce, and so we should hate to see it too. Um, okay, because we're running out of time quickly. Chapter 3, we have this messenger of the Lord. And so remember that Malachi, Malachi is the last prophet, right? He's the last prophet to come. And then there's going to be 400 years of silence, right? Apparent silence from God. But keep that in mind, right? And then after that period, there will arrive a messenger. So it speaks of that in verse 1 of chapter 3. 
behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to, this t- to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? And then you go down to verse 8. Uh, says, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouses, into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you, uh, and pour, sorry, for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. So the people were stingy with their tithing. God says, why are you robbing me? Why are you being stingy? Will I, will I not take care of you like I always have? Will I not pour down my blessing? As I said before, there's, there, you can trust in God, right? You don't lose. In Christ, you do not lose. He will take care of you. And when we are giving to the Lord, give cheerfully, right? The Lord loves a cheerful giver. Um, um, and then if we go down to chapter 4, right, we'll end it there. So chapter 4 says... Go to verse 1. It says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, that it will leave them with neither root nor branch. Um, and then if you go down to verse 4. right? Remember, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So the Lord says, I'm going to come, right? The Lord will come. Before I come, there's going to be a messenger who is going to prepare the way. And then there's going to be Elijah, right? So who is that? That's actually referring to John the Baptist, right? So this is our little introduction to the New Testament. And um, if you look at... So you don't have to turn there, but just quickly, Matthew 17, verse 11, right? So actually, please turn there, please turn there, because like, I think this is quite important. But if you go to Matthew 17, verse 11, this is to do with the transfiguration. Jesus takes the disciples, he takes Peter, James, and John, and John's brother, um, to the mountain. And the disciples see two people at the transfiguration. They see Elijah and Moses. And verse 9 says, and as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one of the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? So the teaching was that Elijah must come first and then the Messiah will appear. And the scribes got it from the book of Malachi. So remember that, like I said, after Malachi, there's the 400 year silence. And God says in the passage we read now in Malachi that he will send the messenger. He will send Elijah before the Messiah. So now the people are expecting Elijah, right? And the scribes were right. Elijah must come before the Messiah. But look at verse 11 um, of Matthew. He says, and he answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So John the Baptist, it's important to know, he was not Elijah reincarnated, right? And the Jews that Jesus is addressing in Matthew's gospel, they would have assumed that, uh, they would never assume that Jesus was referred to incarnation. Besides, if you think back, Elijah actually did not die, right? He was taken to heaven in a cloud, in a whirlwind. So it's not reincarnation. Besides, reincarnation is not biblical, right? It is that John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. That's what Luke 1 verse 17 says. It says that he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, right? To make ready and prepare, to make ready for the Lord and a people prepared. And in a sense, you could see it in the way that John the Baptist behaved. He behaved like Elijah. Both of them were wild men. They were those prophets in the way they dressed, they lived in the wilderness, they, in what they ate and in the way that they behaved, right? So John the Baptist will proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand and that Jesus is coming with a winnowing fork and a fire. Uh, he's going to judge the wicked, right? Jesus says, I, I baptize. No, John the Baptist says, I baptize with water, but the one who is coming will baptize with water and fire. So some churches pray, 
Lord, send us the fire. You know, we want bring down the fire. Baptize us with fire. Do not pray that, right? Jesus baptizes, sorry, Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit and he baptizes with fire. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is salvation. Baptism with fire is judgment. So don't pray that, right? So Malachi, this last book of the Old Testament, ends with the promise of a messenger who is going to come. And then there's a 400-year gap. There's 400 years of silence. God does not send any more prophets. And if you're an Orthodox Jew who, who rejects the New Testament, then it has been 2,400 years of silence. And so that is how it fits together, right? The last prophet ends in Malachi, and then the New Covenant, the New Testament, picks up with John the Baptist. And so um, we'll end it there with Malachi. Um, next week, we're going to meet next week. It's going to be story time, and you won't have to read anything in prep. I'll just be explaining what happens in the 400-year gap, right, between the Old Testament and the New. Was God silent? Was he working? What is happening? What is happening in the 400-year build-up to the New Testament? So, okay, let's end it there. Are there any questions, any comments, um, any thoughts that you guys would like to share? Any questions about the exam? Eighty percent. Eighty percent. Yes. Eight zero. Okay. Uh, shouldn't it be hundred percent? The one hundred percent. Okay, fine. It should, it'll be hundred percent. It'll be perfection. It'll be Christ, the standard of Christ. Okay.